as I read more and more about these prostate issues writ large, I realized that I was encountering phrases in the medical literature that would describe, for example, a patient who presented with the diffuse and hard-to-describe symptoms could be written about saying, well, it's probably his prostate that's haunting him. Or the prostate itself could be embedded in a term or a phrase like, oh, the prostate, a constant torment, and then continue on and describe it. And I thought, what is this amazing gland that's being described as a constant torment and is given the role of haunting its patient, its bodies that it's embedded in? How amazingly poetic are not these descriptions, but also how interesting, how are they embedded in a medical literature that tries to be extremely biomedical and concise? And what are they doing there? Which really tweaked my interest to what is this thing, the prostate? Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Erika Johnson, Professor in Gender and Society at the Department of Thematic Studies, Gender Studies at Glenshoping University. Erika Johnson has been a Pro Futura Scientia Fellow at SCAS and was in residence in the academic year of 2010-2011. Nowadays, she is a member of the National Board of SCAS, representing Linköping University. In this episode, we will dive into the field of medical humanities and talk about Erica Johnson's recent book, A Cultural Biography of the Prostate, as an example. And this is the first episode within the theme Life Sciences. Very welcome to SCAS Talks, Erica. It's very nice to have you here in the SCAS studio. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Well, your introduction was very complete. I guess I could only add that I really enjoy wandering out into the Swedish forest and picking mushrooms. And now it's September, exactly the right season to do that. We will talk a lot about your book today that has just come out. But before we go into that, could you tell us very briefly what your research is about? I've done a lot of work on the body and the body and our sense of self and how both of these are co-produced with or impacted by the types of technologies we encounter in the world around us. So the material world and how that affects us, but also how our bodies and our sense of self impact the material world and what it becomes. And for a large part of that research, it's, I've been looking specifically at medical technologies and medicine. How come that you got interested in this area to start with? I did my PhD at a department of what well, was called technology and social change. So it was an STS department. And there we had lots of these theories sort of floating in the corridors or along the walls, how we and our material world interact with each other. But I was working with a woman who, Boel Berner, who was a sort of a medical sociologist and medical historian. And I think it was there that my interest for medicine and the medical technologies really was tweaked. STS, what does that stand for? Uh, science and technology studies. Good. Thank you. Well, so one of your interests is the medical humanities. And I've come across this term at some point, but not very often. So what are the medical humanities? The medical humanities, as I think it's being used frequently now, often called the critical medical humanities, is sort of an area of study that's starting to bloom up, that's very interdisciplinary, 
And it stems from probably a history of thinking through how the humanities and maybe mostly literature and art interacted with medicine. But then towards the end of the last century, there became a more critical stance that looked at how one could critique medicine and the institutions of medicine using tools, theoretical tools, methods, ways of thinking and being sort of critical towards discourse that are often employed in the humanities or the social sciences. And that is where I think the field is largely now, especially in Europe, though it also is oftentimes a term that's used for those types of academics who are affiliated with medical schools and use the humanities, often writing books and literature, to help medical students and medical doctors both understand their daily existence and practices and also express them and, and work through them. Where I'm placed at Linköping University, we've recently started up a Center for Medical Humanities and Bioethics that's led by Professor Christine Saylor. And there we try to take a very interdisciplinary approach. So the center is intentionally meant to go across various faculties, pulling with academics who are working in the medical faculty and academics who are working in the Faculty of Arts and Letters, creating a place where we can meet and also a place where we can do interdisciplinary work, that is, ask interdisciplinary questions to people who have very different theoretical backgrounds and baggage in their, in their toolbox, and also creating a place where we can talk about how our various approaches to the topic of medicine can inform, for example, education, both medical students' education and also humanities and social science students' educations, and work through questions together that way in a very interdisciplinary way. So, as I said in, in the introduction, you have been a Pro Futura Fellow here before, and you were in residence. We will talk about your experience of the SCAS later on, but just briefly, could you tell us what you were working on then? When I was here then, I was working on a project that started to look at how the HPV vaccine was being introduced to Sweden and which medical institutions and other social institutions were being enrolled in its rollout and also how it was being advertised to prospective users and their parents, since it was aimed at often preteen girls. Yeah, so there I was already looking at how a medical technology, a vaccine, was engaging ideas about the futures of these girls, their healthy futures, their healthy subjectivities, and how that imaginary or image of what a, a future healthy, happy girl slash woman, how that was being used to help promote this technology and engage the technology as something that was important for them to take. We will talk a little bit more about this later, but we should talk about your book, A Cultural Biography of the Prostate, which has just been released, and you have a copy here, which is very nice to see. I've only seen the PDF. <laughs> so can you say a few words or something about the title, a Biography? Why a biography of a gland? What I wanted to do with that title was indicate to the reader that the prostate is very complex and entangled in many different ways of knowing it. And the concept of a biography does that to an extent too. I think we're used to the genre of a biography being applied to a person. But if you think of a biography of a person, it is a book that tries to engage many different voices about that person. Voices that are found maybe in interviews, but also in archive material, perhaps in official documents or press releases or publications. And then also acknowledges that a person can be a very different individual in different contexts. 
at home, private life, or at the office, or in their public sphere. And that multiplicity of both the person and the voices about the person was the feeling I wanted to apply to the prostate here, or the gland, that our understandings of the prostate, the prostate becomes many different things in many different contexts and is talked about in many different ways. And those variations in the discourses are important to understand and feel out if we want to really understand how to address the person with the prostate, the patient with their embedded complex identity who also is presenting with some type of problem in their prostate. Why did you decide to write this book? Why the prostate? You know, I had a while back, I had a research project that was looking at the introduction of Viagra to Sweden and what happened to the understanding of Viagra when it was moved from the U.S. cultural context, where it was very much a lifestyle drug, to the Swedish context, which has a very different system and structure of healthcare provision, which subsidizes pharmaceuticals if they meet certain categories and, and criteria and to a population which approaches their medical provision in a very different way than the American population does. And as I was doing that study, I began to realize that uh, Viagra was often prescribed to men who had different various prostate issues. And as I read more and more about these prostate issues writ large, I realized that I was encountering phrases in the medical literature that would describe, for example, A patient who presented with the diffuse and hard-to-describe symptoms could be written about saying, well, it's probably his prostate that's haunting him. Or the prostate itself could be embedded in a term or a phrase like, oh, the prostate, a constant torment, and then continue on and describe it. And I thought, what is this amazing gland that's being described as a constant torment and is given the role of haunting its patient, its bodies that it's embedded in? How amazingly poetic are not these descriptions, but also how interesting, how are they embedded in a medical literature that tries to be extremely biomedical and concise? And what are they doing there? Which really tweaked my interest to what is this thing, the prostate? And I think, at least for me, and I think maybe for quite a few other people, when we hear the word prostate, we immediately think prostate cancer, perhaps rightly so, but that's really not the only thing about the prostate or that happens to the prostate even. And so I became really curious about what else happens to it, how else it's used to talk about patients, to describe patient problems, and really just what it was, or maybe instead of saying what it is or was, to say how it is becoming as a verb in different discourses and in different contexts. There was a question I should have asked in the beginning. That is, um, what is the prostate? Well, yeah, what is the prostate? I'll give you a short answer quickly, but I want to remind the listener that what is, is a type of question that will try to stabilize the answer. And in our approach, what we tried to do was to try to open it up and see what becomes, to use a verb that's much more related to a temporal ongoing process that can change from various inputs all the time. But if I want to go with is briefly, the prostate is a little gland or a collection of glands actually and muscle structures right underneath the bladder and it surrounds the urethra and is also part of the process or the structures and systems that produce semen. 
So as the sperm is produced in the testicles and then travels out through the vas deferens to be released at ejaculation, it's mixed with some other fluids from the prostate. And that together is then shot out through the urethra at ejaculation. But then also, you know, during just urination, the prostate doesn't do very much, closes off those little ducts. And then the urine flows from the bladder through the urethra, which then goes through the prostate and out the penis. So what can happen sometimes if the prostate becomes enlarged or if there's a tumor growing in the prostate is that, of course, the prostate starts to expand maybe both outwards, but then also inwards. So if you think of the urethra as maybe a um, cocktail straw going through a ping pong ball, if the cells in the prostate start to multiply and expand inward as well, it's going to close off that urethra and make it more and more difficult to urinate which is why many prostate patients initially start to feel like something might be wrong and go to the doctor because of changed urination patterns. You said earlier what becomes the prostate, so do you want to develop that a little bit? Well, I mean, we were just talking about urination practices, and there is a chapter in the book about how different diagnostic processes know the prostate in different ways. So like I said, many patients, many men will seek medical help because they are experiencing urination difficulties. Either they're having to urinate more frequently or they feel the urge to urinate, but they're having difficulties passing the water or waking up many times in the middle of the night and going to the bathroom, either not getting much out or having to, to do it repeatedly throughout the night. So they go to the doctor and doctors actually use quite a few testing methods to talk about or to measure their urination practices how much volume of liquid is being passed every day, how frequently, with what force, but also how the patient is experiencing the difficulties, trying to measure the bothersomeness of the urination for the patient, both to think through what types of treatments would be called for, because many treatments will have side effects as well. So is the prostate being bothersome enough to actually merit treatment? And also to be a way of measuring if the treatment is successful. It has, after six months or a year, the patient experienced a less bothersome urination problem than they had before. Many different ways of knowing the prostate. And then, of course, there are ways of actually knowing the prostate itself. Because what I kind of want to say sometimes in that chapter is that a lot of what we measure when we measure the prostate is actually measuring urination practices or experiences of urination practices. There are ways to address that. Some of them might be very related to the patient or to the prostate, but I kind of want to also bring up the idea that our experience of urination practices and urination needs is also colored by what environment we are in and what types of expectations are on us in that environment. So for example, when I started doing some of the interviews in this um, research many years ago, I was both pregnant initially and then had newly given birth to a child and then for many years had a small child with me wherever I went. So I was constantly looking for a bathroom, preferably a clean one. Often it didn't matter just if there was a bathroom somewhere because at least one of us had to go quickly. And in my search for these bathrooms, I often found myself mumbling in the back of my head, why can they not build a public toilet infrastructure that addresses the needs of women or women and small children? Then I started doing these interviews with men who had various different types of prostate problems, and I realized that the public toilet infrastructure was not serving them very well either. 
it started to make me wonder for whom is the public toilet infrastructure built and which bodies is it serving? And of course, if you read the literature on public toilets, the social science literature on it, you realize that much of it is serving the needs of young, able-bodied men. And here again, I think it's really important to realize that this research points out that men is a category that is just far too big. It's not a helpful, useful category for anything analytically within the social sciences or the humanities or potentially even medicine or potentially even city urban planning. Like We need to start thinking about the bodies that we are planning for, designing treatments for, or encountering in different cases as being very, very heterogeneous, very impacted by intersectional factors continuously. So part of the way of knowing the prostate is knowing the urination practices. There are different ways to start addressing urination needs, some of which are biomedical, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do those. That's very, very important. But some of which are structural. Maybe we need to rethink how we build our public toilet infrastructures, how often and frequently we make clean and good toilets available to the people in the public space and in working spaces. Other ways of knowing the prostate, however, are actually measuring the prostate itself through visualization technologies like MRIs or CT scans, ultrasound wands quite a bit, and then also feeling the prostate through the digital rectal exam, the finger up the anus to feel the prostate, which is something that many men don't look forward to for various different reasons. But one of the benefits of being able to do an interdisciplinary study within what I'm calling here the critical medical humanities is that it makes it legitimate to bring in cultural representations of parts of our examination practices into the analysis itself. And this was really important with the digital rectal exam because it's joked about all the time. Choose any half-funny, bad-quality American Hollywood movie and you're probably going to, half the time you'll see a joke about latex gloves and examination practices. Why are we joking about it all the time? Because it makes us very uncomfortable. Why does it make us very uncomfortable? Well, because there are background things about sexuality and masculinity and aging in the background there all the time. Netflix has a whole series about aging in the first season of it is the prostate looms large. It's everywhere. And the digital rectal exam is a big part of that. And it's there because it's humorous and it's humorous because we worry about it. And it's, we worry about it because it's waking ideas about anxieties about aging, about masculinity, about changed masculinities, and about sexual practices and changed sexual practices and what that circles back to say about our age and our aging and our mortality and our role as men in relational positions towards other men and, and other women and our jobs. And it's all so entangled. And being able to show that through the lens of the prostate with this approach was really valuable. Yeah, we talked about the medical humanities before, and I'm really interested to hear and also let our listeners know, of course, how did you work with this project then? Can you tell us a little bit more about the process? So like I said, I was interested in it because I had begun to encounter the prostate in this work on Viagra. But the questions that I was starting to ask about the prostate seemed to require methodological approaches and theoretical approaches, but also knowledge background knowledge that I didn't have. I was interested, for example, in the PSA test and the discussions around screening. 
and whether or not the PSA screening should be one of those that is offered to the entire population. I think that's a very important question when it comes to the prostate and one that we think about quite a bit. But I also think that these questions about the prostate have a history, a genealogy, and the historical ways of knowing the prostate over time are also very valuable to think through and to have in our baggage as we start to talk about what the prostate is. Knowledge doesn't appear out of nowhere. It comes out of a long tradition of ways of making knowledge. So I needed somebody who could work with a historical perspective, and I'm not a historian. So I needed somebody who could work with questions around policy and risk, for example, and that's not me either. And then I also thought, knowing how the prostate is produced in, for example, medical examinations is a very useful thing to know too. And for that, a person would need an anthropologist. Well, one way to approach it would be to put an anthropologist on the case and send them out to follow medical students who are learning about the prostate and ask questions to how the prostate is presented to them as an object of knowledge and a node of treatment. So I would need an anthropologist or two on the project. I also wanted to work around questions of sexuality because I think that the prostate and fears about the prostate oftentimes stems from fears about what prostate treatments are going to do to a person's sexual abilities and practices. And so a sexologist would be really good to have on a project like this. Also, because the prostate is not only a diseased gland, and for some people, the prostate becomes a node of erotic pleasure. A sexologist, again, would be really good to have on something like that. And then there were questions that I wanted to ask to men who have had perhaps prostate cancer or other prostate problems and have had severe side effects after that and how they live with their bodies and live with their expectations for masculinity and sexuality and fears of aging after a prostate problem. And for that, I would need somebody who was good with very sensitive interviews, perhaps a medical sociologist. I felt like there were so many different angles that a person needed to come at the prostate with in order to try to feel out or palpate the discursive contours of that prostate in different areas and places. So it called for an interdisciplinary approach, and it called for a team of researchers. Luckily, there was a grant available at the time through the Science Council, the Swedish Research Council, that allowed for a person to apply for that much money, and I was granted the grant. I was so grateful. And then when I came to my department head and said, I've got this grant, it's pretty big, I'm going to have to hire some historians, a couple of anthropologists, a sociologist or two, a sexologist who will probably be at a hospital, by the way, not even here with us. How can we do that and find room for them on our corridor? And at that moment, I was so grateful to be working at Linköping University where interdisciplinarity is sort of the core element of at least the department where I was working at. And my department head didn't blink an eye, just said, okay, well, let's start writing the job, the job application calls. Thank goodness there was a funding structure that allowed for this type of project and also a um, university structure that allowed for the hiring of people to, to come and work for me. And part of it, I think that was really valuable to us was that most of us could be at the same department on a daily basis. So we met in the coffee rooms when we had our morning coffee. We met at the weekly seminars and talked about our various research projects throughout the process of the research project. We were able to easily get together and have prostate lunches and talk about, you know, how the, how the project was both progressing in each of our own little areas, but then also what aspects of our own studies could feed into a larger question about the prostate in different ways. And so it was the materiality and practicalities of being able to do an interdisciplinary research project 
were very well served by working at that department, actually. That's very interesting because, I mean, you, as you said, you have two things. You have the funding, of course, you need the money to pay all these people and to give them time to do this research. But then also you need a place to be and the surrounding infrastructure. I'm glad you brought up the word time. I think one amazing aspect of this funding has been its generosity and time. And I was able to be very flexible with it and fund the majority of my colleagues at the beginning of the project. And then just sort of let a small dribble of funding continue on for quite a while so that we could finish up and I could start to process and think through all of their findings as well together and put it all together into this book. And it took time. I'm embarrassed to admit how much time it took, but it did take time. And I guess I'd like to just put that out there and say, wow, it's good if we can have academic structures that allow us to have this small, low, small, little, slow cook going for many, many years of our projects so that we can write through them with the time that they actually need rather than pumping out articles every half year. Yes, that's a very good point also. So how was this? You you all gathered then in the beginning in your in your corridor to work. How was the beginning of that? Did you have any difficulties communicating or how did you get started on this project with so many different or with people from so many different backgrounds? One important thing was that we were able to meet on a regular basis. We couldn't come to a workshop every six months, say something insulting and then disappear and then like try to forget it for the next six months. We had to actually interact every day or most days. So we had to, with that, bring a sensitivity to other people's approaches and ways of making knowledge and a respect for that their ways of making knowledge were not necessarily the same as ours or mine or, you know, the other people in the groups. So we had conversations about What is data, for example? Is the data from an interview this digital file on my phone? Is it the transcript that I've made from it? Is it the collection of themes that I then pull out of that interview as I analyze it? And where in this question of what is data, is it data that is shareable or data that is something that we could think about being reproducible? Do we have demand for reproducibility in our various fields? What do we do with archive data? Where is it appropriate to call a document data because it's in an archive? And if so, what is it appropriate to do with that? Here the questions with the historians, were, having them as part of the team were incredibly valuable because, of course, they are both familiar with how to work with archival material and also very well schooled in how not to do certain things with archival data. And we had a lot of discussions about that. The same with theory. You know, what can you do with theory? When is it legitimate to bring it in? How can theory help us see something in the data that we wouldn't see in the first place? If it does that, are we actually seeing something theoretical or are we seeing something empirical? And what can we legitimately claim to be making in terms of knowledge out of that practice of analyzing an empirical material or something similar with a theoretical lens? And I don't think that we all agreed on this. I know we didn't all agree on this throughout the course of the study. But we all of us had to engage in conversations about how our different fields themselves have genealogies of knowledge production and what those genealogies do with us as individuals and what we are able to see because of that, but also what we are blinded for because of that as well. So lots of interesting interdisciplinary conversations were generated out of this work around one little object, the prostate. What about results then? I mean, you 
apply your met- your different methods you discuss a lot what kind of results did you get what could you conclude what do you take up in the book then I'm going to talk about that in two different ways because the first thing I want to address when you ask about results is how we were able to actually produce what is legitimately called a result for the academic structures that we work within and I'm incredibly lucky to have made it to a place in my career where maybe I can sit and write on a book for many years and nobody's going to fire me though they might raise some eyebrows whereas many of the other colleagues that were working in this project were younger we had one graduate student we had several at the postdoc level and some junior researchers who were working with us too and for them it was much more important that they get out articles so that when they meet the next hurdle on the career steps or ladder they're able to prove to the people who are evaluating them that they are both solidly working in whatever field or discipline they belong to and also pushing the envelope of that field and you know they're definitely the proper candidate for the next job or the next docent evaluation or the next lectureship so they had to publish articles and i think that's one place where working in an interdisciplinary project is a little bit tricky because you have a lot of journals that are now opening up a little bit more to the concept of an interdisciplinary study and an interdisciplinary approach but those journals are often newer and younger and perhaps not in all cases as prestigious as the older established disciplinary journals for a particular field and i feel like it's really important that i as a research leader try to produce a research plan for my younger colleagues that will not only give them some really interesting stuff to do but also generate the fodder that they need to feed the system in order to get them to the next step. So for me that's one reason why it's important to start establishing things like centers for medical humanities because it gives legitimacy to our approach, it gives legitimacy to this type of interdisciplinary work in the structural framework of the university system, but it also helps both publishing houses for journals and publishing houses for books realize that they need to start having book series and journals in the medical humanities that do really engage an interdisciplinary approach but i also think it's important to start lobbying towards the older disciplines and say look some of these inputs from other fields are very useful and generative in these conversations too okay so you asked about our results quite a few of our results were articles in various journals some of them quite interdisciplinary some of them not as so that was a good thing what we found in the study was of course a whole bunch of different things for example we talked about the anthropologist i had a woman named jenny gleisner who was working with us and she had prior to coming to this study been working with a group of gynecologists at the university hospital and observing how they were using professional patients to teach the gynecological exam and that during the course of that exam and the teaching of it to medical students the patient itself was being imagined and presented as a patient who was very sensitive perhaps had emotional baggage with them that would make the exam potentially very difficult but also somebody who was concerned and worried and needed to be addressed through very particular social ways like looking the patient in the eye explaining what was going to happen talking about each part of the exam in a calming and illustrative way and really taking concern for this very potentially fragile patient so then i had the anthropologist follow along on some urology exam teaching moments 
and saw how the urologists, like the students who were learning to do the prostate exam, which is a very invasive, intimate exam as well, were taught very clearly how and what to feel for and shown pictures of the ultrasound as well and, you know, talked about that. But were also inadvertently taught how to interact with a patient who was already in the room, often already laying on the table, often already ready for the exam, in a semi, semi-lighted room in many cases, and was there and was expected to buck up and take it like a man in many ways. A type of, a very particular type of masculinity was being produced in that interaction in the examination room. Of course, there was concern for this patient and his potential fears of cancer, but there was very little concern for the sensitivities of that particular exam and what sort of feelings they may awaken a patient and expectation of the patient as being somebody who was just there to get this over and done with as quickly as possible. Now, it's entirely possible that many, many men do approach their prostate exams in that way and prefer it that way. So I'm not saying the other way is better, but I'm not saying it's not better either. Looking at the work that Jenny Gleisner has done, it's interesting to start asking the question of why we produce two very different patient subjectivities in these two different exams and do that through a theoretical framework that sees the body as being part of a binary structure, sexed, but male or female, and how through, I guess, 40, 50 years of feminist activism and feminist research on medical care, the medical community has started to realize that the female patient coming to them is a person with a background and expectations, and also not a woman writ large. It's a woman who has many different aspects of their identity related to things like class or race or nationality. So an intersectional subject, as we sometimes call it in in feminist studies. And that, I think, can sometimes be quite missing in our discussions of prostate patients. We tend to just assume that they are cis men, and we assume that they are just plain men, as if that was a category that was applicable to all of them without the heterogeneous aspects that an intersectional lens helps us to see. So in this case, the examination room, we saw that very clearly, that particular type of man was being produced. So that was one of our results. We also had results that looked at sort of historical ways of diagnosing and treating the patient. There we came across something very interesting. It was primarily done by Ellen Björk, who was our graduate student, and she was working quite closely with our historian, Maria Björkman. And they were looking at the way, Ellen in particular, was looking at the way that for a brief period of time towards the end of the 1800s, There was in Northern Europe, and to some extent in North America, this suggestion and idea that castration might be one good way of dealing with men who were diagnosed as having prostate hyperplasia, which is sort of similar to what we today call benign prostate hyperplasia, when the prostate simply gets too large and disrupts urination. So for various reasons, castration was suggested as one of these treatments. And when we looked at the various reasons behind that suggestion, it became clear that one of them, one of the ways that they were sourcing knowledge about a potential treatment was by looking at practices that were already happening to female bodies. The removal of the ovaries and sometimes the uterus, but primarily the ovaries to address the growth of tumors, often benign tumors in the uterus. So that practice had already been established by medicine and it was being translated over to the male body 
And there was the idea that, okay, well, if we remove the ovaries in the female body, and it helps with this growth of tumors, perhaps if we remove the testicles in the male body, it will also help with the growth of the prostate. It didn't help. It was not a successful treatment. But for us, it was very interesting because the general received narrative is that the medical body, as like the standard human, is the male body. And knowledge taken from that is then applied and sometimes modified a bit to the female body, if it is applied to the female body at all. And in many, many, many cases, that's true. Of course, we've all heard these examples of heart attacks and how doctors have for many, many years not recognized symptoms of heart attacks in female patients because they're slightly different and treatment is different. So I'm not saying that that isn't the case, but here we actually had an example of the opposite, where a female body treatment was then applied to the male body and crossed over in the other direction, which was for us, in our small little nerdy way, very, very interesting. You have been into this quite a bit, but just why is it so important that we don't only think about the prostate and discuss it in medical terms, but also in this broader aspects that you describe in the book and that you have been researching? I think there are two reasons for this. The first is particularly related to prostate and men who are experiencing prostate issues. And like I've mentioned before, I think it's important to realize that while we all want to have a very healthy biomedical body, and I think that that's an incredibly important area, and we need to have research on biomedical approaches to the prostate, of course, as well to keep it healthy, I do think that all of those treatments are being offered to or applied to bodies who leave the clinic or the hospital afterwards, who want to then continue on and live in very particular ways with the people around them, and that those treatments are impacting that person's ability to continue doing that and impacting therewith also the other people around them. And so if we can engage that future idea of my body leaving the clinic for the person who's seeking treatment in a more articulated way and ask what expectations they have, how we as a medical community could help them continue to achieve what they want to achieve after leaving the treatment process, or help them to change those expectations if necessary, to take a wider view of the treatment and what it will do that also engages in that person or understands that person as somebody embedded in social relations, I think we might be more successful with the treatments and how they are experienced by the people. So that's one reason. The other reason, which is maybe a bit of a harsher thing to say, is that when we did these studies and what a lot of the medical humanities and social science work on medicine starts to show is that bodies as biomedical organisms, the individuals having them, the treatments and their effects are all embedded in the both policy structures around, the structures that produce healthcare in particular ways for particular types of people or subjects or patients, and in cultural norms and expectations for that person and the treatments and the healthy subjectivities that, are, that they will be expected to be able to do afterwards. Yet those change. They're culturally specific they shift across nation-state borders. They shift within a nation-state, you know, in different subcultures for people with different ages and different backgrounds. All of those structures impact the embeddedness of a biomedical response or treatment. And yet, when we look at the way medical treatments are discussed, they are often done so in terms of gold standards, evidence-based medicine. The idea in them seems to be that if we find the true result 
that's generalizable, that result of a study will be applicable across borders and to different cultures and different subcultures, to many different bodies. And yet when we look at how these treatments are embraced in new places, when they shift cultural contexts or any context, they of course are impacted by the new place where they are, come into practice and they're provided in practice. And practice is very varied and very heterogeneous. So at some level, this type of approach to the prostate starts to call into question the idea of evidence-based medicine as being something that can be from nowhere for everywhere, and instead tries to ask the question, for whom, where, and when, and how? What impact does the actual embeddedness of this treatment have? How can the cultures that are taking it in impact what that treatment becomes as it's used in practice? At some level, this work starts to ask about the theoretical foundations of evidence-based medicine and their actual generalizability. You have been given quite some talks about the book already, for example, at the Edinburgh Science Festival and also in other contexts. How do you explain the big interest in this before it even has come up? Well, if I'm honest, many of these talks were at medical humanities centers around, around the world. And, you know, I was lucky that this, this was happening during our Zoom pandemic. So I was able to just zoom in and out very easily and very cheaply to many people who are organizing seminars. So there's probably a large element of practicality there. But if I want to say that the study itself is interesting, I might put the emphasis on the fact that the study was so interdisciplinary. There were nine of us working together on this project. And here's a big shout out to the Swedish Research Council that they were actually willing to fund that in the humanities and social sciences. There are not loads of opportunities for that type of funding in the humanities and especially the humanities but also the social sciences so internationally this type of project where we can lead it over many years with a huge group and bring it together this way isn't all that super common so it's fun to be able to be in a place where that type of research is actually allowed so what happens now after the release what happens both with the life of the book but also the, the project in itself the project is done the project is done And yet the project is nowhere near done because actually during all of these talks during the spring, I've become more and more aware that there are lots of other theoretical approaches that we could have taken that we didn't, lots of other empirical areas that we didn't get to, not least of all, lots of other knowledge-making practices about the body in different cultural contexts that we haven't explored. I would really like to be able to do more of this work and look at how the prostate is imagined in different parts of the world. And I think that there's so much more out there that we could explore about the prostate in different areas, different contexts. So earlier you have also published another book, which is called Gendering Drugs, Feminist Studies of Pharmaceuticals. You were a little bit into this project at the beginning of this conversation and talking about your work at SCUS. So can you just tell us a little bit more about this project? What did you do? This was also an interdisciplinary project, the seed of which was born here, planted here at SCUS initially when I had some time to look at how HPV, the vaccine, was being introduced to Sweden. And as I was doing that, I started thinking about the ways that the girls who were being given the vaccine were being imagined as 
healthy, sexually active women with jobs later on. So even though the vaccine was being given to a body that was maybe between 9 and 12 years old, they were doing so within a framework that was saying, of course, you want to protect your daughter now, but you also want to protect your daughter in the future when she wants to be like this so that she won't get cervical cancer. And this whole way of seeing a pharmaceutical's application to a body which was on the cusp of becoming an adult and imagining it as an adult subject, to me, was really provocative and generative. And then I started looking at some, I was already then looking at prostate stuff a little bit, some of the treatments for both prostate issues and then also on a different tangent, some of the work on Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's medications and ways of like delaying the onset or development of Alzheimer's. And in both of those cases, there was also an example of a pharmaceutical that was being presented as something that would allow us to continue to stretch the length or period of the healthy subject of the adult human for as long as possible before and then before what? Before falling off into this empty abyss of non-human subjectness? I mean, it was in many ways very clear that there was this scary emptiness beyond the concept of the healthy adult subject. So I had medication, an example of a medication that was being presented to bodies about to become adults, using our understandings of what it means to be an adult to help explain why. And then I had examples of medication that was being presented to bodies that were about to leave what we envisioned or imagined being this healthy adult subject position. So I was able to get together some funding to also this time gather a group of colleagues from different fields, social science fields primarily, to look at, for example, HPV in Sweden, HPV vaccination practices in the UK, and then also in Colombia in South America. Also to look at the use of hormones for delaying puberty in bodies that were about to become adults, and then to look at treatments for Alzheimer's and for prostate issues. So we were able to together look at these different pharmaceutical treatments for bodies about to become or about to leave this adult subject position, and then try to see what that said about our understandings of what it means to be a healthy subject. And one of the things, of course, is that the idea of being a healthy subject is quite often, of course not always, but quite often an adult subject. But it's also an adult subject that is, again, as with the prostate, in relations with others continuously. Whether that be the grandmother who wants to continue to be able to read goodnight stories to her granddaughter, or the patient with a prostate issue who wants to be able to continue to take long bike rides with friends or partners, or if these want to be girls about to get an HPV vaccine, in some countries also boys about to get an HPV vaccine, and what types of understandings of their future sexualities are engaged in those questions. So all of this was talking about bodies in relation to other bodies, and also then subjectivities in relationships with other subjectivities. And once that happens, of course, then it just becomes incredibly messy and entangled and engaged with all sorts of ideas about our positions in society and these positions and how they change throughout time. So it became really, really interesting to start looking at what types of subjectivities were enrolled in marketing campaigns, but also were enrolled in lobbying to legitimate these treatments 
towards policymakers, but then also in ways of addressing medical doctors to produce treatments that were useful for medical doctors as they encountered their patients. So we looked a lot at discourse, but we also looked at sort of the images around discourse. So we understood discourse as also being represented in visual materials, but it was incredibly messy. And that, again, starts to undermine the idea that a treatment can be brought forward in one context, proven correct there, and then just across the board applied in many other different contexts. Because when that happens, it's encountering all of these different types of messinesses in different places. So what can we learn from all this? What have you learned? Well, I've learned to to try to trace the genealogies of knowledge that's being presented to me, to see where that knowledge was made and by whom, to try to question or ask about the situatedness of the person giving the knowledge, to ask what their positionality is and how that impacts what knowledge they're actually presenting to me, and to do this not only in the social sciences, but to do this across the board and start to apply it in cases where data, statistics, truth is being presented as objective or neutral, and to be able to start to question what politics of, in many cases, exclusion, what messy data on the edges that doesn't quite fit the study and is therefore not included in the analysis is actually being left out, and how that messiness could actually say something more and what the exclusion of that messiness is doing to the politics of the knowledge that's being produced and then put forward as truth or statistically relevant or data that I should listen to as a layperson. So I think in all of these cases, we have particular results. I hope that this book about the prostate, for example, will be useful to help find words to articulate the needs of patients with prostates and their desires. I hope that it will help find words or give questions to medical practitioners who are dealing with the prostate that they can use to open up for conversations. But I hope also that it, which maybe sounds funny to say, but I hope also it maybe undermines the hegemonic expertise of knowledge about the prostate that we now consider when we read or encounter the biomedical solution to the prostate and say, wait a minute, let's look at how this is situated knowledge. Let's look at what's not included. Let's try to question how my positionality is impacted by this knowledge and how I maybe want to push back against it. So empowering the person receiving that knowledge to actually question the legitimacy of the knowledge that's being produced. What are you working on currently? And what do you have in mind for future projects? I was really lucky enough to be engaged with another colleague, Catherine Harrison, in a project that is looking at our imaginaries of robots and robotics in the healthcare system and how we think robots might be able to help with some of the needs that are identified in healthcare today, often for older people or sometimes even school children. So here you can probably see traces of this whole idea that we have these bodies on both ends of the adult human spectrum that we think need care in various ways to help them into this the norm of what the healthy subject is. And one of the ways of providing care for them today in many different discourses is through the use of robots. And as part of this project, we're asking what imaginaries of care are then being used if we claim that that care is replaceable by a robot 
that care that we normally think of as being human could be done by a program, like a programmable robot? If so, what does that say about care? And what is it leaving out? And what is it putting in? And these parts that are being left out, what happens to them as we think through robots and integrate them into different care structures? So we're looking a bit, or we hope to look a bit at actual practice, which has been very difficult during the pandemic. We're also thinking through the discourses again of care and trying to see what is being put into that term and tease that apart and ask what's also being left out. Exciting. We will have to do another podcast about that, I think. Let's just talk a little bit about your time at SCAS. You were here in residence 2010-2011. What was your experience then of this environment here, the multidisciplinary research environment? When I think back to my time at SCAS, it was definitely the best gig I ever had. Just was wonderful. But I was trying to think about what it was that was making it so wonderful. And I think it was the unusual combination of incredibly lively input at the lunches every day. It's an amazing opportunity to sit and chat with people that you normally would not chat with. And at the seminars, to be exposed to the research that was happening in the offices down my corridor that was so different than research that I would normally encounter in the corridors I sit in otherwise. And the conversations about that at the end of the seminars and afterwards. But those moments, as intense as they were, were embedded in longer periods of working quietly in my office, undisturbed. And it was so wonderful. The almost isolation of being able to go into an office and sit down and read. I was reading undisturbed. And I was writing undisturbed. And if I needed to go out and do an interview, that was fine. But it was these long periods of reflection and and input that were then punctuated by moments of intense social interaction with many very different and interesting people all the time. Plus the materiality of the rooms and the infrastructure that we had, the care that was given to make sure that everything we needed was available, the computer infrastructure was so well-functioning that all of that just faded into the background and I was able to focus on what I was doing. It was really an amazing time. Then after being here at SCAS, you have experienced other environments. You have also been part of the Young Academy of Sweden. What are the benefits of these environments where you encounter different disciplines and also what are the challenges? One of the most useful benefits of these environments to me is being continuously confronted by the different ways that my academic colleagues make knowledge and being continuously reminded that they and myself are all situated with our own backgrounds, be that a disciplinary baggage that we have or our cultural backgrounds, my embodied me as a cis woman. All of this I bring with me to my knowledge practices and I'm continuously confronted with that when I meet other people who are bringing their own suitcases with them into the room and starting to produce knowledge that way. And I think one of the benefits of this is that an interdisciplinary environment like that, like the Swedish Young Academy or interdisciplinary spaces like SCAS, force people to think through their own presumptions about their data-making processes and data and what they think is data and try to articulate why for them that actually is data and what they think you can actually legitimately do with that. 
And being forced to put that into words is always hard, but also really useful. And I think that's one of the big challenges too. So it's both a challenge and a benefit. But this continuously being confronted with other people's lenses out into the world, we explain and explore what we're doing together. Thank you very much for joining SCAS Talks, talking to me and, of course, our listeners about your research. Thank you so much for letting me just talk and talk and talk. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the first episode in the theme Life Sciences, and I have talked to Erica Johnson, Professor in Gender and Society at the Department of Thematic Studies, Gender Studies at Linköping University, about her new book, A Cultural Biography of the Prostate, and her research field within the medical humanities. This fall, SCAS Talks will feature the following topics. Life Sciences, Infrastructures and Asia. In previous episodes of this podcast, we have covered different aspects of the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, and life in outer space. We are sure that there is something of interest for everybody, so you can always have a look at the previous episodes if you have just discovered this podcast. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and most podcast apps. You can also give us a rating or leave a review. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Erica Johnson once again for joining me on SCAS Talks and also thank you for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>